Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. And I'm Damian Garde. Adam Feuerstein is out this week. It's Thursday, August 5th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. mRNA technology has been proven in spectacular fashion throughout the pandemic. But what's next? Drug companies are making big moves in the space, and we'll dive into them all. Next, we welcome back our colleague Helen Branswell to help us make sense of this dizzying moment with the Delta variant and where the pandemic is headed. We'll start, as always, with a look at the biggest news of the week in biotech, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. My name is Maria. My name is Danielle, and Maria and I are the new hosts of Genentech's award-winning podcast, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. It's a show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Aww. So Maria, true story, is from the UK. She's into clinical data, transcription factors, and long runs on the beach. That's right. And Danielle is from Texas. She loves translational medicine, woodworking, and getting up close and personal with cancer cells. And when we're not botching each other's accents, you can usually find us chatting up other scientists about all kinds of cutting edge research. So grab a drink and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com slash podcast. So the drug company Amgen is probably, in no particular order, famous for two things, inventing new drugs and employing a sizable number of attorneys. And that latter fact made it very surprising this week, at least to me, when Amgen disclosed that it might be facing down a multi-billion dollar unpaid tax bill to the IRS. So yeah, this was included in Amgen's earnings release this week, where it said essentially it was fighting with the IRS over a tax bill the IRS says is $3.6 billion. This was for years ago, um, and basically it's a fight over recognizing taxes um, over Amgen's business in Puerto Rico. And I thought, huh, that's that's kind of interesting. You know, this is a lot of money. Um, what is this about? And of course, we know that um, there's a lot of drug manufacturing in Puerto Rico because of tax benefits. And I was thinking, does this signal some kind of problem with with that benefit or the way companies have recognized it over the years? So I called up Brian Scorney at Baird. And this story is actually a lot bigger and a lot more interesting than I realized. And Amgen's stock actually went down almost 7% um, on Wednesday, the day after it disclosed this. um, Because according to Brian, Amgen is talking about just a few years where it may owe this three and a half or $3.6 billion. But it's possible the IRS is looking at this over, he says, potentially 11 years. And there could also be interest they need to pay. And so he sort of did the back of the envelope math. And he says, right now we're talking about three and a half billion dollars. But if you extrapolate this and say the IRS is going to argue with them over 11 years worth of tax bills, This could be an $18 billion problem for Amgen. And so this actually turns out to be a much bigger deal. Um, And whereas they're going to be duking this out for a while and we're not going to see a resolution to it. And it could turn out that that Amgen wins and they were recording their taxes properly and and they don't owe three and a half billion, much less 18 billion. But certainly investors are recognizing the risk that their tax bill could be quite large. Yeah, no, it's a, a striking thing. It's not what you really prepare for going into biopharma earnings season is getting this this huge curveball in taxation. Um, I would I would want to credit, though, Salim Syed from Mizuho was looking at sort of 
historical precedent here when when drug companies run into issues like this. And it seems like, according to his research, the the most common scenario is that years and years down the line, the company agrees to some sort of settlement with the IRS that tends to be about 20 percent of the uh, you know the amount that, that the government has sought. So that would bring um, you know the pain downward a little bit for Amgen, but still, it, it seems quite likely that they they are going to have to pay something. As we wait to find out about that, on the nearer term, um, potentially is going to be updates in the Alzheimer's space. Um, and Damien, we got to hear a little bit from Eli Lilly, which is nipping at Biogen's heels uh, with its drug Donanimab this week. What were the biggest updates that you heard? Well, I feel like the big takeaway was what Wall Street folks call body language, which is to say <laughs> Lilly was very, very bullish on Donanimab. It's potentially competing Alzheimer's treatment uh, to Biogen's Aduhelm, which they expect to file for FDA approval uh, by the end of this year, based solely on very strong but you know relatively small, uh, at least in number of patients in the trial, data showing that Donanimab can reduce uh, amyloid plaques in the brain, which, as we know, uh, is what the FDA approved Aduhelm based on controversially. But Lilly is counting on that not being an aberration, but rather that being the new standard for getting approval uh, for treatments for Alzheimer's disease. And it seems like if, if you just look at, you know, the movement in stock prices and the, uh, I guess, expectations that investors have layered on, Donanimab looks like the drug everyone's betting on. Eli Lilly has actually benefited more in terms of valuation and stock price than Biogen since the Aduhelm approval, in part because I think there's a perception that Lilly's data are a little cleaner, not as confusing, and that if they can win approval, the combination of them being this massive pharma company that has launched countless drugs uh, over the course of, I don't know, 100 years or however long they've been around, and then furthermore, the way Donanimab is dosed could be perceived as being preferable among patients and among neurologists who, as we know, are quite famously now a little befuddled about what to do with Aduhelm now that it's available. So it was a big week for Eli Lilly, I guess is the short answer. This is neither here nor there, but I cannot hear the drug named Donanimab without getting Rafi's banana phone stuck in my head. Every time I hear it, I go, Donanimab. Um, anyway, on that note, interestingly, there was also an update from the um, HHS, Office of the Inspector General, on the FDA's requested review of its approval of aducanumab, which doesn't make me sing banana phone. Um, but I thought the news there was really interesting in the way that OIG said it was going to undertake this process because it wasn't limited to the aducanumab approval. It seemed like they were talking about reviewing the accelerated approval pathway more broadly and in the context, you know, looking at the aducanumab approval process and using that to help it evaluate whether this entire pathway enables perhaps inappropriate um, interactions between the agency and companies. Um, what did you make of that announcement, Damien, and you know what it says about what could happen with Aduhelm or Aducanumab, um, and also if there's broader implications for biotech? Yeah, it did seem to be this massive undertaking. I mean, OIG just put out a relatively dense paragraph telling us uh, what they were planning to do, and it began with the kind of litany of alleged offenses that the FDA committed with respect to Aduhelm, whether it's uh, you know, the way they conceive or the way they considered the data, the collaboration with Biogen, etc. But then when you get down to the business end of the paragraph where OIG says what they'll actually do, it is, as you said, this consideration of the entire accelerated approval pathway. And then you scroll down and they say they expect to have reports, uh, multiple reports on this investigation by 2023. So from that end, it doesn't look like the 
uh, sort of laser-focused investigation that maybe some people would have wanted to see on specifically the run-up to the Agihome approval, but rather this more like galaxy-brained look at uh, at what the FDA did with Agihome and how it reflects on what they do more broadly. I mean, the, the takeaway from that is that it seems likely, well, one, 2023 is a long time in the future, especially in FDA terms. Um, a lot of the principal folks who were involved in this may or may not still be around at that point. And of course, in, in Agihome terms, that's two years of, of uh, selling the drug that Biogen will have done before any details from this investigation come out. But I did see, and, and I thought it was relatively compelling, the case that, you know, this sounds like it will lead to a massive document dump many years after the controversy and people will have moved on and will continue to do so. Lastly, just catch us up on what happened with this company Zymergen this week. Right. So Zymergen uh, is a company in the emerging field of synthetic biology, which, um, you know, which is the notion that the tools of manufacturing that we've seen in biotech using, you know, living things to, to generate products can be used not just to make drugs, but to make household items, um, agricultural products, food. I mean, yeah, the list would be infinite of what these companies promise to be able to do. So for Zymergen, which just went public uh, in May, their first kind of notion was to use basically biotech manufacturing to make um, like a biofilm that would be used in like foldable displays. So like a, a cell phone that you can fold up, but the screen itself is part of the fold. Anyway, so they went public. They raised uh, in excess of $500 million, had a valuation in excess of $3 billion, and everything seemed to be chugging along. That's up until this week when the company uh, provided a press release that with the dreaded headline provides business update. And the business update in this case was that, yeah, that basically everything they had ever said about potential product sales, they were now walking back. The co-founder and CEO was leaving the company based upon mutual, etc. was the language of the press release. And basically, they were just hitting reset on everything they'd ever promised. And Jay Flatley, the former sort of legendary CEO of Illumina, chairman of the company, was stepping in as interim CEO and had this really awkward, I, I thought, to listen to conference call where he kind of just had to face analysts and say, you know, forget everything we've ever said, um, for lack of a better phrase. And uh, we're going to move on from this together, et cetera. The company lost in excess of, I think, 70% of its value. And I mean, it's it's difficult to know what to read through uh, from this thing. It's tempting to to look at the entire synthetic biology field, which is pretty vast. And um, I think Ginkgo Bioworks, probably the most famous company in that field, and, and look askance and wonder, you know, well, what other promises that have been made are going to have to be walked back? Or as, as I think a lot of people have taken, that this is a Zymergen-specific issue. But I mean, the pieces are kind of still falling into place. Well, if there's one thing we've learned from years of covering this industry, it's that if you can get a fresh start anywhere, it's in biotech. There was a time not too long ago where the notion that messenger RNA would become a cornerstone or even a a fixture in how medicine is developed and administered in this country was arguably speculative. That has obviously changed with the pandemic. The uh, mRNA vaccines have helped deliver the world from what would have been a worse situation and have thus far made upwards of tens of billions of dollars, I guess, for the inventors. And so I think what we've seen recently, what we're going to talk about this week is 
the pharmaceutical world kind of wrapping its mind around the potential of mRNA and deciding that it would like a cut of those future multi-billion dollar revenues. And I think the, the sticking point for that this week was, was Sanofi, the French multinational drug giant, paying $3.2 billion for an mRNA-focused company called Translate Bio that it had previously worked with uh, on vaccines for COVID-19 and other things. Yeah, let's talk about that deal in particular. I saw multiple takes on it. You know, Sanofi has to be an mRNA, and so buying its partner makes a whole lot of sense. In another take, um, Translate Bio is working with Sanofi on a COVID vaccine, and they said they're expecting to get phase one, two data on their COVID vaccine in the third quarter of this year. So one just has to wonder, like, what do they expect to, what headway do they expect to make there in the mRNA vaccine space with Translate Bio? Or maybe that project doesn't matter that much and they're just making a longer term bet on mRNA in case, you know, that starts to eat their lunch in the flu shot business, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think the one read through that that kind of supports either conclusion is that if you're a multinational drug company, and this was the case with, you know, monoclonal antibodies decades ago, this is something you just have to have a role in, at least in the minds of these people. Because similar to this, a couple weeks ago, I think we mentioned, you know, Pfizer in their earnings call had a slide uh, showing, you know, their pipeline and included mRNA stuff. And they had their COVID-19 vaccine, which, as we know, is co-developed with BioNTech and a couple other things appended with an asterisk saying partnered with BioNTech. But then there was this whole other field on the right side of the slide of other mRNA projects down the road that bore no asterisks, suggesting Pfizer feels like it can go into this alone. And GlaxoSmithKline, which has worked with CureVac, has also kind of made noise about building an mRNA business of its own. So it does seem like there is, and and those are vaccine-heavy companies, so that's worth noting, but that the consensus has kind of shifted as to just how speculative the future of mRNA once seemed to be when the people that work on it were the likes of Moderna and BioNTech. Definitely. And, you know, Moderna reported earnings Thursday morning and just laid out all of the things that it's working on in mRNA from, of course, its COVID vaccine, which um, for which they presented six-month follow-up data, which is sort of comparable to the six-month data we got from Pfizer last week. Overall, Moderna says 93% six months. Pfizer overall was 91%. But if you break that down to the last four to six months um, of that follow-up, Moderna was still 92%, um, whereas Pfizer went down to 84% at months four to six. The caveat to all of this is that the data cutoff was in March. This was before Delta was circulating. And so it's not you know, super relevant to this moment we're in right now, but it does suggest that Moderna's efficacy maybe holds up a little better. But you know, we need to see the real world data. They spent a lot of the time on their conference call um, talking about their expectation that boosters will still be needed, that the Delta variant poses greater risks. We'll see more vaccine breakthroughs with it. And they think everybody should start getting boosted in the winter. Whether health authorities actually agree with that is another question. And we'll talk about that with our wonderful colleague, Helen Branswell, in the next segment. Um, but you know, Moderna clearly is not limiting itself to the COVID-19 vaccine. They've got a whole lot of other stuff they're working on mRNA. Right. And I thought I was going into the earnings presentation with kind of an eye on that because, you know, Moderna, as we know, is not a company uh, short on confidence and nor should they be considering their recent success. And they have been billing themselves for a decade as truly the mRNA company. And I remember, you know, the business pitch 
from CEO Stefan Bonsell years ago was, one, mRNA will prove to be a cornerstone of medicine, and two, Moderna will be the partner of choice for every, you know, everyone who is finding religion late. They will have to beat a path to our doorstep um, because they'll want in on this mRNA thing. Now, one, arguably, has happened. Two, kind of to what we were discussing, the likes of Pfizer, Sanofi, and GSK seem to think that they can do this without Moderna's help. And so I was curious, going into the earnings call, what, what's Moderna's kind of counteroffensive going to be? How are they going to own the future now that the world has come around to their way of thinking about this technology? And the answer was kind of interesting. I mean, one, they're doing a $1 billion stock buyback. And this is a stock that is, I assume, outstripped every other drug company with respect to its its gains this year. And the company's valuation is now at about $168 billion, which forces even the most bullish analysts to kind of tie themselves into knots to say, I believe in Moderna, but uh, this valuation... Anyway, and they have two or $12.2 billion worth of cash. So they're sitting in a remarkably enviable position. So I think what a lot of people were going into their earnings call wondering is like, okay, so what are you going to do with that cash that can kind of further wall off the future to prevent the likes of Pfizer from coming in and taking what, what you've built? And the answer basically seemed to be, we're going to look at getting into genome editing, which is really logical. So, you know, Moderna has, has obviously... Uh, built a big business around mRNA, but the other thing they've had to invest in are the lipid nanoparticles, the sort of fatty envelopes that get the mRNA to their target cells. It turns out lipid nanoparticles also key to many genome editing technologies and other genetic medicines. And so uh, that was really interesting to me that basically we might have gotten a glimpse at the future of Moderna, which would be a company that is obviously built upon mRNA, but would also be uh, folding in these probably complementary ideas of genome editing, which would basically consolidate them as, at least in the biotech sector, a company with its hands on like every really, really, really hyped up technology. So that'll be interesting. Well, that doesn't sound great for its stock valuation <laughs> <laughs> necessarily. But just on that point, it, it's it's just mind blowing to note. Moderna is approaching, as you said, $170 billion in market valuation. If you look at other big Biotechs, Gilead is about $86 billion. Amgen, $134 billion. Biogen, $50 billion. So you're starting to get up to be, to be more comparable to companies like Merck. That's valued at $190 billion. Lilly and Pfizer are around $250 billion. So Moderna is just massive. It's just like unbelievable to know that it's that big. And Really interesting to hear about what it's going to do with all of that money. And we'll have to see if all of this bears out. We should even note, I mean, this proof of concept for the COVID vaccines was incredible for the mRNA technology, but we haven't actually seen it really in anything else. I mean, we have to see how well it works as vaccines against other diseases. And then also as a therapeutic to treat things, I'm really excited to see the flu data they're going to get at, at some point. Um, you know, is it going to work so well that the expectations are just so high? Right. And I guess, yeah, forward looking, that's the next, I would say gold rush, but I guess like bake off that we're going to see in mRNA because all of the parties we've discussed, Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, GSK, and Sanofi now with Translate Bio are rushing into the annual influenza vaccine market with early stage trials beginning this year. So it'll take time for those data to really like illustrate the picture of how effective these will be. Um, but uh, everybody had the same idea at the same time. So we'll find out.
time our colleague Helen Branswell joined us on this podcast, the U.S. was reporting an average of about 18,000 COVID-19 cases and 175 deaths per day. This week, the daily average is approaching 90,000 cases and 380 deaths. And astonishingly, Helen's last appearance was less than a month ago. The Delta variant has changed things significantly. So we asked Helen to come back and once again lead us through it all. Helen, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. Glad to be here. So let's start with the new risk posed by Delta. We've seen, um, you know, rising case counts, uh, as we mentioned earlier, and there seems to be some alarm within the CDC. What stood out to you about the you know kind of recent path that the pandemic has taken? Well, you know, it, it, it's really, this is kind of stating the obvious, but it's a really clear um, signal that the pandemic is not over. I mean, I think, you know, in June, the administration was on the verge of sort of almost having a, you know, um, mission accomplished moment for July 4th because vaccination rates were not quite where people hoped they'd be, but, you know, things seem to be kind of coming under control. And then the virus, you know, threw something new at us as it is wont to do. Um, you know, it is spreading there very well. We knew that this virus could do that from the way uh, it moved through India and through the United Kingdom. It's it's more transmissible and uh, finding lots of people who haven't yet been infected or vaccinated uh, in this country. That means, you know, there are lots of places where vaccination rates are still uh, far too low and um, the virus is making itself known there, uh, you know, um, places like Louisiana are in terrible straits and having the worst period of the pandemic so far. And, you know, one of the things that seems so worrisome about Delta is just that really high viral load that we can get. And the CDC saying in the circumstances when vaccinated people do get infected, which is less frequent than for unvaccinated people, clearly, but when it does happen, uh, vaccinated people can carry viral loads as high as unvaccinated people. And so there's that risk for being able to transmit, even if you're fully vaccinated. How do you process that information and how the risk has changed for even fully vaccinated people with Delta? Um, you know, some of that information I find a bit confusing. Um, you, you know, how often it happens, how much that's contributing to the spread, it's, it's not clear, I don't think, at this point. And even though people who are fully vaccinated can get, you know, high levels of, of virus in their noses, it's not clear. In fact, I think it's thought that, that they clear the virus quicker and they may not transmit as much virus for as long as people who are unvaccinated. But, you know, overall, it's not a welcome turn of events, but it's not completely surprising either. Uh, you know, I think we were a bit, um, I don't know, misled is probably too strong a word, but sort of <laughs> maybe starstruck for a bit uh, when the um, efficacy data for the mRNA vaccines came out, you know, last December, and we saw the Pfizer coming in at 95% and, and Moderna at 94%. So, so the likelihood that these vaccines could, you know, over the long term stave off even the mildest of infections um, in vaccinated people, you know, didn't seem to be that great. I mean, we don't typically manage to do that um, 
with respiratory pathogens and or vaccines to predict against resp- respiratory pathogens. And I think what we're seeing now is sort of um, we're coming down to earth a little bit in terms of what we can expect from these vaccines, I think. Well, and that segues pretty nicely to the the ongoing and seemingly escalating conversation about the potential need for booster doses. Um, we were listening to Moderna's earnings call this morning. It will not surprise you to learn that they believe that booster doses will be a necessity um, because of the Delta variant. Uh, but we also know that, you know, that's public health officials are, can be split on that. And then we also saw this week the WHO urging wealthy nations not to embrace booster doses until there have been, you know, a more adequate number of vaccine doses distributed to lower income countries. So, you know, with all of that swirling around, what are you looking out for next uh, in that debate? You know, more data to sh- to show why it is that the the vaccine manufacturers think that um, that people need boosters now. I-, I think you know many of the immunologists that I've spoken to think that people may need to be boosted at some point, and they think that that point may arrive quicker for some people than others. For instance, I don't think there's a lot of um, argument at this point against giving uh, an additional dose to people who have, uh, you know, who are immune compromised. For instance, people who've had solid organ transplants and are on immunosuppressant drugs. Uh, you know, there's clear evidence that they don't get a good response from two doses and of, of the mRNA vaccines and that they probably need a third. You know, at some point in time, it may be that countries will feel that the elderly people over 75 or something like that may need an additional dose sooner. But, um, and, and of course there are countries that have already started that Israel has started that the UK is going to, um, to start giving an additional dose to seniors this fall. Um, in Israel, they're doing it for people 60 and older. Uh, I, I think the WHO's real concern is that, um, the decisions will be made to boost across the board, which will suck up just enormous amounts of antigen and really make the job of vaccinating the parts of the world that are still waiting much, much harder. On that note, Helen, I'm curious to know how you think about whether it's possible for countries to even think about making more vaccine available globally, or if our system is just set up in such a way that we're so insular, politicians are making these decisions and view it as, you know, it would be so unpopular with the people who elect them to give vaccine doses away that could possibly be used for an American first, even if that American's already had two shots, that we're sort of condemning ourselves to this cycle of keeping a huge portion of the world unprotected and enabling more variants potentially to rise up that will then pose yet another risk. And then we'll need to boost again. And I mean, is anybody, do you think there's thought about how to actually end the pandemic and from the country level, can we actually make those decisions? Um, or is it just politically untenable? And so we're just stuck. <laughs> it is a very difficult position. You know, there, the, um, I've frankly been surprised at, uh, like I expected vaccine nationalism. I didn't really think it would last this long. 
But, you know, yesterday when I tweeted about my story about the WHO call for a moratorium, you know, there were people saying, what about my old elderly mother? What about my, you know, people who are making the decisions on this, like in the, the administration, have a very tight path to walk because, first of all, there are a lot of people in this country who are still not vaccinated and you don't want to give away vaccine that they might actually agree to take. And, you know, if, if, if it becomes clear that you're starting to see um, not just mild breakthrough cases, but cases of severe and infection and, you know, rising hospitalization rates amongst people who've been fully vaccinated, you know, you're going to need to make a decision about whether or not you you want to boost. And the administration probably doesn't want to tie its hands or, you know, put itself in a position where it can't do that if it feels it needs to. But certainly the longer the rest of the world remains unvaccinated and um, this virus is cycling through, you know, hundreds of millions of people, it will continue to mutate and it will continue to throw up variants and um, some of them might not take off. Some of them will take off and they will cause us problems and prolong the acute phase of this pandemic. So yeah, pivoting to the US where our problem is very much demand and not supply uh, with respect to vaccination, you had a pretty prescient story a few weeks ago about basically the levers that public health authorities can pull at either a state or municipal um, or even larger level to try to increase vaccination rates in the US. And we've seen in recent weeks here in New York City, there are plans to um, you know, effectively create ostensible vaccine mandates for certain activities. And I think there's uh, notions of, of expanding that around the country. What do you think about, you know, the, the near term future here in the US about kind of closing that gap between, you know, those who have already been vaccinated and the, the very many who, who have been reluctant to this point? It's, it's been interesting to me to see how quickly there's been sort of this groundswell of, of uh, movement towards things like vaccine mandates and discussion about, you know, whether or not you would need something, not a vaccine passport per se, but some sort of proof of vaccination to to take part in some sorts of public events. You know, initially, I think people were reluctant, especially on the, the vaccine mandate front, to push too hard on that because, I mean, it is certainly true that for some portion of the people who aren't vaccinated, it's about a don't tell me what to do type of thing that, you know, the harder you push, the harder they're going to dig their heels in. And it feels like the balance has shifted with with the arrival of Delta and the problems it's causing, that it that it's given a lot of places almost uh, the political cover to say, okay, enough is enough. Um, you know, we've asked people to to get vaccinated to protect themselves and protect the people around them, and a lot of Americans have done that, but uh, many others haven't, and it's endangering um, it's endangering the li- lives in their communities, and so we're going to need to go to a next step. So, really, you know, it's a bit startling to me to, to see how many play- types of institutions are you know, talking quite openly about vaccine mandates. It's, I mean, it's not uncommon, but, you know, private businesses don't typically require uh, people to to be vaccinated against things. I mean, you know, where we work, we, we don't have to get a flu shot. The company helps us to get one if we want one, but we don't have to get one. But many com- 
companies and ours included are saying, um, you know, you want to work in the office, you're going to need to be vaccinated. And that is, that's an interesting change. And I think, you know, it may lead to an uptake of vaccine and, you know, among some people who've been just sort of putting it off. It's, it's going to be interesting what it does sort of at the far end of the vaccine hesitancy um, spectrum where you get into sort of real resistance. Well, Helen, we so appreciate you being here to to help us understand the changing nature of this pandemic. And we are sure we will get to have you join us again soon. Thanks again. It's always great to talk to you guys. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Epinado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what you think gets resolved first, Amgen's tax battle or the OIG review of aducanumab and accelerated approval. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.